wasabi fingers. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang, and we are back today with a group show after a couple of deep dive episodes in a row. Joining me here at the Boulder Groupetto is ace mechanic, Zach Edwards. Hi, Zach. Hello. Happy birthday. Thank you. Uh, Also here on this show is senior tech editor, Dave Rome in Sydney, Australia. Hi, Dave. Hello. It's not my birthday, but happy birthday to Zach. So, Are are you no longer underwater? No, no, we're still underwater. It it Um. never ends. I am... Mm. Quite looking forward to a, attending a, a dry part of the world. Mm, okay. Well, we look forward to having you over here at Sea Otter. Dave is going to be making the trip over to Sea Otter, mm-hmm. so everyone knows. Going to be joining us for live tech podcasts at Sea Otter. It's going to uh, rain last, the whole time. It may <laughs> rain the whole time. Yes. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> yes. Uh, sea Otter is the reason why I own Boggs Boots, by the way. Um, anyway, last oh, but certainly not least is Cycling Tips Editor-in-Chief, Kaylee Fritz. Hello. Kaylee. Uh, Kaylee apparently has not learned to wash his hands after eating wasabi peas before <laughs> rubbing his eyes. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. Mistakes were made. That, that We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> well, on today's show, we are going to talk about the new Specialized Alley Sprint and what that potentially means for higher-end aluminum road bikes in general. We will chat dropper posts in road racing. We'll debate the idea that a carbon bike can be a forever bike. And we'll ask the question, how light is too light? And then we will wrap up the show with everyone's favorite segment, Ask a Mechanic. All right. First up, the LA Sprint. Uh, yes. So Specialized just launched a new version of its popular LA Sprint, basically just like a purpose-built crit racing bike, essentially. Uh, Dave, you wrote this one up, so I'm going to let you take this one from here. What are we looking at? Yeah. A uh, new bike that is basically the alloy sibling of the Tarmac SL7. So it, it reuses the, the fork, the seat post, and the headset design of the Tarmac, uh, which means it moves to sort of semi-internal cable, uh, cable routing via the headset. So the it is designed to have both mechanical gear housing and hydraulic brake hoses run through the top headset bearing. Uh yeah, uh new new tube profiles are said to be more aero, it's said to be more stiffer, it's said to be more compliant. It is not lighter, uh and it is more expensive. Uh so that's probably the the summary that you need to know. And uh, yeah, so the, basically this the story here seems to be more stiffness, more aero, mm-hmm. but also more weight and like you said, more money. Um but why is this bike supposedly better than the one that it had before? I mean, it incorporates a different some some interesting new technology with aluminum forming, right? Mm, yeah, it's the first alloy superbike if you if you believe the press materials. Um I think you're supposed to yell that, Dave. Uh, superbike. Just to be clear, we don't believe the press materials as a rule. Yeah, I didn't I didn't use the word superbike in my in my 4000 word review actually. No no mention of superbike in 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 those words. Uh, they've, they've basically, they've done some pretty advanced things with the, um, with the alloy of this frame. So, uh, one is seen at the head tube. They've used their Deluzio smart world technology. They've sort of pushed that a little bit further for what they say is their most, uh, complicated head tube design. So basically the head tube actually starts as like a sheet of metal and is, is formed like, a um, sort of like as if they're making a cardboard box almost is, is formed into shape and then and then welded down at center and then that's then attached to the top and down tube and you can kind of see like a lot of people have said that it's quite 
ugly looking, but it's it's basically that's because you see the weld sort of intersect at the at the two main tubes of the bike, um, not in traditional places. Um, and they they uh, specialize are pretty clear that they couldn't have done the stiffness and the I guess the ride quality of that bike without that technology. Um, and and yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty cool to look like you can actually look it without the fork and the frame. You can actually see in and see welds running in all different ways you don't expect to see um and then that also allowed the internal cable routing through an alloy frame um it gave room for it the other clever thing is that the down tube uh and bottom bracket shell are actually one piece so they've actually fluid formed a single tube that incorporates the bottom bracket shell uh and then again they claim that's that sort of really helped with uh upping this the, the stiffness the the pedaling efficiency of that frame uh so yeah there are some certainly unique elements going on with this frame but uh the downside of all that is it's uh, increased the cost. Oh, and it is how much heavier? It's a couple hundred grams heavier, isn't it? It's like- it's hard to tell. I don't, I don't have a weight of the old disc frame from looking on weight weenies, and it's a different size, and you know you don't really know what they've included in terms of uh, additional extras with the frame. But it looks to be only about a hundred grams difference once you uh, account for uh, the C clamp and the through axle and the bin cage bolts. Uh, the tricky thing is, is it's not, you know, not comparing apples to apples with, uh, with the paint either. So, right. uh, but yeah, about a hundred grams. Um, but certainly like a lot of people, I, in my review, I pointed out the weight difference to, uh, the one that you had tested previously, which is the original room break version. Uh, and in that case it is closer to a 300 gram difference, but you know. Right. But the one that I had was, was rim break. And I believe that one was anodized too. It wasn't yeah. painted, I think. Yeah. So that sa- saves quite a bit of weight as well yeah whereas when i tested it's definitely got some pretty fancy paint on it so it's uh surely some weight there as well well i mean speaking of you riding i mean you you did like it right or mm-hmm. i mean I, I shouldn't even say that you that you liked it but i think you i think you are, were pretty clear that you found it to be a very uh it very much fulfilled the purpose that it was designed to 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 fulfill it feels like a what you want from a crit racing bike. It feels super reactive and very fun to ride fast. And uh, yeah, that stiffness is uh, basically exactly what you want if you are a sprinter or, or racing a crit where you're consistently putting down power out of corners. It gives a lot of feedback to, to what the tires are doing and uh, it just feels very efficient and, and quick. Uh, the downside to that is it can be probably can be quite fatiguing if you're taking it out on you know long days in the saddle. So, uh, and it's also you know Specialized have pretty aggressive handling, pretty aggressive fit at the best of times. This is no different. So, yeah, it's 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 an alloy bike, but it's certainly not an alloy bike for beginner riders. It's it's an alloy bike for people that want to race. So this is something that I wrote about with that first generation alley sprint. Um, so just, just to recap a little bit with this smart weld technology that you were talking about, I mean, really the, the, the core element of this smart weld thing is instead of having tubes that are, that are mitered and joined and welded at the, at the tube junctions, like, like you normally have smart weld takes that weld junction and moves it away from the joint. So essentially you have these sort of like preformed little tube stubs, and then the ends of those tubes have they're, they're kind of curled or, or they're kind of curled in a little bit um, so that you have like when you put those two bends together, you have sort of like this natural valley for the for the weld bead to sit in. Uh, it supposedly makes for like, you know, more consistent welds and makes it, you know, makes it less 
dependent on the skill of the welder, which could also be interpreted as being able to hire less experienced welders to make your frames potentially. Um, but I guess the point being is that supposedly that just the geometry makes it more reliable, makes it more automatically reliable that you get a good weld. Um, but at the time, I kind of expected that Specialized would incorporate that over a lot more of their aluminum frame range across road and mountain and everything. And that hasn't actually really happened. Um, so like looking at the rest of their range, it seems like this sort of thing would be very beneficial to other aluminum bikes. But had Specialized made any mention as to whether we'll see this on like the Diverge or like any of the mountain bikes or like anything like that? Because we don't see Smart World really hardly anywhere except for the Alley Sprint. It's on the chisel, right? Kaylee? I believe it is, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Actually, I know uh, it is. Yeah, it is. It does exist on other bikes. The issue here is cost. I mean, Smart World is is a much more costly technology to to produce these complicated head tubes than just starting off with a a fluid form tube that's slightly, you know, hourglass shape and then just mitering tubes and welding in place like everyone else does. Um so yeah, it's I think that's the limitation is People want bikes cheaper, and this technology is kind of working against that. Um, so I think they they really have to keep it on bikes where they they can justify a performance advantage that people are willing to pay for. Right, and I guess a performance advantage where people are willing to pay a little bit more for it and are willing to not I don't want to say downgrade, but people are willing to uh, accept the pros and cons of aluminum mm-hmm. uh, and. And maybe just don't really want to spend that kind of money on carbon fiber, especially if it has the perception of being more fragile. Yeah, and that's that's the tricky thing with these new these new super bikes, right? Uh, I really should stop saying that because I don't even believe it. Um, super bike, <laughs> but, uh, but like the Cab Cannondale Cab Thirteen, right? And and now this the LA Sprint. Um, they're both really close, or in some cases even more expensive than some carbon bikes. Uh, and and that's kind of offended quite a few people because the alloy race bike has traditionally been the low cost entry to the sport, uh, the low you know the the collegiate racer bike for example. And this isn't cheap. It's 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 three thousand US for a one hundred five spec bike. Uh, yeah, so it's it's a tough one that that they're doing this. It's it's kind of creating these really nice alloy bikes that sit in a kind of weird spot on the market where. You're basically buying a bike because you want it to be metal, as opposed to you, as opposed to buying it because you want it to be cheaper. Right, right. So you do, you do still have to deal with the, the, the stigma, so to speak, of you know a bike that's made of metal. Oh no, as opposed to one that's composite. Um, is there any reason why Specialized couldn't file down those welds though? Because that has been one <laughs> common complaint that I've heard from people. Um, mm. I mean, the technology might be really good from an engineering perspective, yep. but visually they look kind of weird they're pretty lumpy mm. um i i didn't ask that question i i believe there's there's only two reasons why they wouldn't uh the first is that by filing them down you remove some of the material there that's helping to reinforce the area but there seems like there's so much extra the other is cost <laughs> <laughs> uh that is an extra step that that would you know add time and to the production of the frame and maybe they decided that it was already too expensive for 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 uh the market and any extra steps were unjustified uh i in reality it's probably a mixture of both um but yeah i don't agree that those welds are kind of unsightly you guys want one i you know i kind of do i also kind of wanted the old one too but the the issue that i always have is 
I have no use personally for a road racing bike. I just don't need one. Um, but I love the idea of a nice aluminum bike like that for sure. I mean, I think unless your goal is to have a really light, <clears throat> a really light bike and spend the money for S works and have like a 15 pound road bike, I don't know why you wouldn't buy this. Like to me, it's kind of better in every way. It's cheaper. You can crash it. It doesn't fall apart when you do crash it. It is just as arrow. I mean, if, if it's uncomfortable on big rides, then put some 30, 32s on it at 50 PSI. Because they'll fit. Yeah, because they'll fit. Why not? It's so like, to me, I don't... It's making the tarmac a hard sell, like other than the weight thing. Because the tarmac's a lot of money. The tarmac's a lot of money. The tarmac is smoother riding as well. So even, you know, if you even with larger tires, the tarmac will always be smoother riding. Uh, but... Yes, tires do make a huge difference there, and you can add comfort to this bike through those means. Um, how, how much more is an equivalent tarmac, spec-wise? Mm, that is a good question because you can't; they don't have any equals. What's, I think what's the like frame, roughly, roughly, th- yeah. I think the frame was about double. Yeah. So why would you not? Why? Why would I want a tarmac? Sell me. Well, because <laughs> then I can tell people how expensive my bike was. Yeah, other than that. <laughs> yeah, the tarmac well, doesn't have ugly welds on it. Well, let me ask you this though. So specialized with it, one of the one of the draws of this Alley Sprint in the past has been that there have been all sorts of like limited edition paints that are even without and they've like, been hard limit- to buy because they do such limited numbers. Correct. Like I, I actually even did try to buy one several years ago. And by the time I thought of contacting specialized to see if I could buy one, they didn't have any. Yeah. Um so what I am wondering about is, so they, they already have released this bike with a bunch of different paint jobs. They already have a, a limited edition with a higher end spec and stuff like that. This would perhaps be cost prohibitive, but they have done polished LA sprints in the past, if I remember correctly. They had an S-Works one for a while. Yeah. It was so sweet. What if they did, what if Specialized did an S-Works LA sprint limited, whatever you want to call it, with polished welds? So filed down smooth welds, assuming that's possible and smart from an engineering perspective, and also just polish the whole damn thing. To make it chrome. Basically, yeah. I mean, sure. Like, if you're going to hype up the fact that it's metal, why not really, really hype up the fact that it's metal and just polish it? I think it? that, like, that's cool, and it would look rad. But I think the end of the day, like, having these bikes be available for purchase is way more valuable than being like, look at these cool frames that some influencers got and it sold out because no one can get them. Well, sure. So I mean, now they're going to go on eBay for three times of the original retail price. Like, I, I think them being readily available in normal colors is way more important than having this like flagship well, aluminum bike. Well, why can't you have both? You could, but that would, that's asking a lot. I, well, so it's intentional. There's no question that, that the way that they release these things is intentional, right? And, and they're, they're creating, uh, demand via scarcity. No, no question about that. And then they're sticking Legion on them and they're sticking, like you said, influencers on them and, and whatever else. And yeah, it's, it's, they're doing this on purpose. This is not a bike. Because Tarmacs are still, Tarmacs will still be available. So right. like, Oh, well, you can't buy an LA. So I have to upgrade and buy the carbon one that costs more. Well, and it's, and it's as much a bicycle for people to ride. This is a marketing vehicle, right? Like it, it is intended this, this, the LA is not intended to be a massive revenue generator for specialized in the grand scheme of the things that they sell, right? What it is intended to do is make a big splash every time they upgrade it, 
or update it or put a new paint job on it or whatever. And it does that, right? I mean, they, they, they put them under what they put them under Peter Sagan at one point back yeah, in the Bora day. Tour down under. Bora at Tour down under. Like they've done a bunch of stuff with these bikes because what these bikes signify is actually more important and more powerful than the bike itself. And if the bike itself was more powerful, then they would make a lot of them in red, blue, black, and silver and sell the crap out of them. But they don't. They they make them in like pink with leopard print. And they sell not that many. <laughs> so, it, uh, yeah, it's just it's, it's an intentional thing. You just have to kind of take it for what it is. It's kind of, I guess it's kind of annoying. It's kind of unfortunate if you really want one of these things. You kind of you got to know somebody to get one or you got to be really fast uh, on the buy button when they could make more. They absolutely could make more. But let's not let's not sort of beat around the bush of what the purpose of this bike is for Specialized. It's also, uh, I believe... What we don't have in the range at the moment is just a standard affordable LA. And I believe the LA Sprint also serves to to help sell those. Right. Well, it I makes mean, it makes the aluminum bike more attractive. Sure. Always. I mean that yeah. that is sort of, you know, one of the one of the pillars or like one of the one of the ideas behind uh Beblin pricing, right? Like mm-hmm. like Beblin goods. Like you just yep. you make the things more expensive so that it seems that it makes it seem like the lesser ones are better than they are. Also, hmm. I apologize to all the Aussies. I said aluminum. I meant to say aluminium. Um, oh, I've been spending too long with these guys. We're, We're winning. slowly assimilating you. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, I am still curious to see how this goes because it, it does seem conceivable that uh, just looking at the past, Specialized may incorporate this new head tube design into the chisel, maybe. Uh, hopefully, it does not also incorporate the internal cable routing on the chisel because that would be a travesty. <laughs> It's gonna happen. It's the way things we'll are see. going. I hear. I hear. I can't I'm, stop I'm, it. I'm, I'm on my old, old, old grumpy hater. I'm whoa, on my old grumpy whoa. hater uh, uh, soapbox here. Anyway, all right. Well, speaking of, well, I guess we're not gonna we're gonna generate a whole lot, a whole bunch of more hater comments here at this point because speaking of racing and racing bikes, Mate Mahorich recently won a big race, uh, Milan San Remo, a couple of weeks ago, largely due to a daredevil descent of the Cipressa that he says was aided by his use of a dropper seat post. Poggio. What? The Poggio race It was guy. a Poggio? It was a Poggio. <laughs> oh, no, it was the Poggio. <laughs> That's all Sorry. right. That's Sorry. all right. I get to get no, tech get- things wrong. You get to get racing things wrong. This is just, it's just life. This is. I, I at least got the. I at least got the person in the race right. I mean, <laughs> you you did. Th- you did. Order. But order is, is, is restored to the universe. Okay, okay. Anyway, he says he largely... Got, got that gap that he got because of that dropper seat post and how much faster he was able to, to descend. The Poggio, excuse me. Uh, in this case, he used a 70 mil travel Fox Transfer SL with some sort of custom lever on his right-hand drop. Uh, but it was installed in an otherwise standard issue Merida Sculptura team, I believe. Um, so we touched on this subject a little bit in the weekly cycling tip show a couple weeks ago, right, kind of right after it happened. But I wanted to dive into this a little deeper today. Um, because this topic has come up before, especially when the uh, the super tuck position was banned, because you are required to actually have your butt on a saddle and not underneath a saddle. Um, do we think this is potentially the start of a bigger trend? And is it potentially the start of a new stage of development in road dropper seat posts? Can I first say, he descended very fast, and that is how he got his gap. But he basically motor paced to the finish line. And 
I do not think he won because of the dropper. He won because of the motorcycles that oh, were I, I didn't 15 say he, feet in front I of him. I didn't say he won because of the dropper, but he, but I'm just saying that he he credits that dropper with being able to get a lot of that gap on the yeah, descent. Yeah, for sure. But oh. no, I don't think it's the future of road bikes. Like this, you're, this Mont San Remo is such a specific race with this descent that's technical and fast. But like any any race that has major descents, they also usually have to go up the hill, and people are not going to add three, 400 grams to their bike to have a seat post that lets them go a little bit faster down a hill. Yeah. I mean, I, I could see certain riders pulling it out for certain instances, it's right? Like very specific use case. Yeah. Scenario. Like I don't think it's going to show up on most of the bikes and most of the, most of the Tour de France Alpine stages or, or Pyrenean stages or, or whatever, but I could see it showing up because there's, there's often a lot of stages and major stage races that finish with downhills these days. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll go over four or five climbs and then descend for 15 minutes into some valley. And that's where the finish line is. And I could see it happening there. Uh, in particular, I, I think a lot of the stuff, a lot of this stuff always just comes back to the weight limit, right? Like at 6.8 kilos, if you're on a rim brake, but you can probably have a rim brake bike and a dropper post and be at around 6.8 kilos, right? Eh, it'd be pretty close. I think it'd be pretty close, Yeah, but I, yeah. I don't think that's the advantage, though. I think the, the late braking of disc brakes has well, a bigger advantage, right? He ran a 180 mil rotor. Yeah. That's what I mean. That that That's the catch-22, right? Is like if you want to be at 6.8 kilos, you kind of have to run rim brakes with your dropper. Yeah. But then you're on worse brakes with your dropper post. <laughs> if you just went with the disc brakes, you'd probably be faster than with the rim brakes. So, like, what is the point at that yeah. point? Sure, there's always a tipping point. Yeah. But I guess my question is, we are, we're talking about this subject based on how droppers are now. What would droppers have to be for them to be more widely used in road racing? The big limitation here is shape, right? So uh, that scenario with the Merida is he swapped off his regular aero bike, the Reactor, and went to the Sculptura, which happens to have a round seat post. But round seat posts are pretty rare amongst a lot of the world tour bikes at the moment. Super bikes. A lot of the super bikes <laughs> um, now have either aero or uh, D-shaped seat posts, either for comfort or or for aerodynamics. Uh, yeah, so I mean, the, that round seat post that he happened to be able to put into his frame, that's that's not a common thing. Uh, so yeah, I think that's that's the big limitation here is a lot of brands, like you know anyone riding for a specialized team, for example, couldn't just put a regular dropper post into a frame. They'd have to have one created. I mean, even if you could, like we we're talking about comfort on the LA, like... A dropper seat post inherently is so stiff and mm -hmm. awful and not compliant in any sort of way. So like half of these companies marketing for their frames is it's comfortable as well as being fast. So then you put a dropper post on it and it's all of a sudden not comfortable at all. Right. Because it's basically like you're riding a stick of concrete. Yeah. Sorry. So, all right. So they'd have to be they'd have to be lighter. That's a given. They would have to be presumably made in some sort of aerodynamic shape. Uh, and ideally they would be made in such a way that it doesn't kill the ride quality. Yeah. Right? I mean, the problem I would see too, is like most dropper posts nowadays are built by suspension companies, whether it's Fox or RockShox or any number of companies. And I feel like with the shape thing, there's not, not all of a sudden going to be a standard seat post shape like ever that's not going to happen unless everyone goes back to round seat posts i was gonna say so round, then the problem, round sounds like a great standard i know shape. weird <laughs> perhaps but like 27.2 then what happens <laughs> in the last five years of marketing where aero seat posts are way faster 
But like the problem I'd see is like then every company starts making their own OEC posts. And like traditionally that kind of proprietary stuff doesn't always work that well. We already have an industry-wide issue with rigid C posts in these frames, right? Like we've got it, we've got we're we're heading into a problem where anyone buying an existing high-end racing carbon bike in seven to ten years' time when those brands stop producing spare parts. Anyone still riding that bike that then has a C-post brake on them is going to have a hell of a hard time trying to find a replacement. And the dropper post yeah. potentially just makes that an absolute nightmare. Yeah, let, let's let's not forget how difficult it is to make a good dropper post. Like I've been on a lot of these things. <laughs> yep. I mean, I don't I've never personally tried to make one. Uh, but I'm it must so be that's difficult. That's the compliance thing. Because mu- you get the, the right. like first centimeter of squish. <laughs> yeah, you, you, get, you get the little little squishy top bit. Yeah. I mean, having ridden a lot of these things over the last decade or so on a, on mountain bikes, at least half of them have failed within like 18 months of getting mm-hmm. them. And they're right? from, and these are from big companies. Like, yeah. you know, RockShox has got it wrong. Fox has gotten it wrong. Like it's just it, there's a lot of it. exactly bad, bad and, and like I will kind of on a mountain bike, particularly on a trail bike, I'll kind of just ignore that. Like I'll, I'll just, Oh, like the, my saddle just moves up and down by five millimeters all the time. Whatever. I'll just like adjust it if up. I a have 160 mile anyway. travel. It doesn't matter. Exactly. Exactly. But, but on a road bike, that would drive me absolutely insane. Mm-hmm. So yet another reason why I, 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 I don't think that they are the future of, of road bikes. I mean, these are all the things that I brought up in the article that I wrote uh, after the Super Tuck was banned last year. Just, you know, there was this discussion as to whether that ban would usher in a new age of dropper repos. And I didn't think it was going to happen. And it still hasn't happened in this one instance. Like like you said, Zach, is a very specific usage, usage case. But I do wonder if we might see just a little bit more moving forward. All right, moving away from racing, I recently reviewed a carbon road bike from a tiny little company called Pursuit in Montana. Uh, It's the new carbon frame offshoot from longtime titanium and steel custom builder Carl Strong. Bikes are offered in three model families that are basically variations of the same theme. They're competitively light. They're offered with custom geometry and and custom carbon fiber layups at no extra charge. Good, the bikes are already kind of expensive. Uh, And of course, there is stuff like options for extra mounts, custom paint, so on and so forth. Basically, everything you expect from a custom bike. Um, the model that I rode called the Supple Road uh, also had really fun geometry. It had room for like 700 by 32 or 650 by 42 mil tires, front rear fender mounts, basically just like a really good do everything drop bar bike for most mixed terrain riders. Uh, and while it was not inexpensive, it's 4,800 US for the frame set, actually not all that out of line with what other stuff costs from mainstream brands. Like if, if I look at an S Works Tarmac or Athos is more expensive, for example, but like a second tier tarmac or ethos is less. It's you know this this supple road thing is also close to a, a Trek Mendona SLR. It's about a thousand bucks more than a giant TCR Advanced SL. I mean, you kind of get the picture. Um, but all of those mainstream bikes are persistently chasing things like aero savings and watts. They're always trying to be better at something from the previous generation. Um, but this pursuit seems to be going after more long term goals like just like durability, ride quality, handling, fit, that sort of thing. Um, so there's always this concept of the forever bike that seems to predominantly gravitate toward like titanium and sometimes steel. And there's always this, this perception that those materials last forever, they're, they're easily repairable, that sort of thing. But why can't a carbon bike be a forever bike if it is not built to be stupidly light? As someone that owns a titanium custom bicycle, 
I hate forever bikes. It is not a thing anymore. Like, can we just kill that? The riding changes. Yeah, but like, let's say five or so years ago, you could have a road frame from 30 years ago and call it a forever bike and put a new group set on it. If you buy a bicycle today and want to put a new group set on it in 10 years, like it's not going to be possible. So therefore you can't have a forever bike if you can't continually keep putting new parts on it because the axles will have changed or bottom bracket will have changed or something like it just doesn't work that way anymore. Like you can have a nice bike that you plan on keeping for more than a season or two and be fine with that, but it's not a forever bike. Yeah, I think it's overly optimistic at this point, unless unless you just really want to like go buy four group sets and save them, save them in the basement and and put them on. Because like like I'm I'm thinking about that with my my mosaic travel bike right now. I'm like, all right, so how soon do I have to start hoarding high end mechanical drivetrain stuff? Yeah, pretty soon, right? My my rim brake (laughs) titanium custom road bike. I'm like. In two years from now, if I want to put a new group set on it, like am what? I going to be able to put something other than like some old 105 or old 11 speed rival what, or something? What Microsoft. is the optimal? <laughs> what is the 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 optimal like air temperature and water content to make sure that my brake blocks when I pull them out from the basement <laughs> 30 years still stop me? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm. That's that's what I'm working There's, through right now. There are long-term sure wine storage facilities. We should be talking to them about uh, bicycle parts. <laughs> just leaving a little bit of room Zach. for those those Swiss stop carbon brake pads. Exactly. <laughs> this, this Zach, I, I totally get. I totally get what you're saying. And that we like. I'm we, sure this bike is great, but, but it's not a forever bike. But we were, but we were just talking about how you know we have all these issues with all, with all these proprietary parts and cockpits and seat post sizes and shapes and all this other stuff. I, as far as you know, as far as component compatibility goes, I mean, th- this bike is about as standard as you can get. So it's called just, a normal bike, not a forever bike. <laughs> but how? But but for, but for those parts, I mean, how likely is it? You know, we we I th- I think this is probably not the first time that this topic has been raised. Um, but do we really anticipate that a regular inch and an eighth stem will be completely invisible and completely disappear in 10, 15 years, or do we really think that? a bottom bracket that goes into a threaded shell is going to completely, completely disappear. Like, like, do we think those things are really going to be obsolete at some point? I'm not like stems and seat posts and stuff like that. That's less the issue. It's more like you're buying a disc brake bike now. Like surely the industry is going to come out. Like road bikes are already e-road bikes are already on boost. So like road bikes are surely going to head that way. So like why it's, it's stuff like that. Not necessarily stem. It's annoying things like, like chain line and, and, uh, hanger uh, length, for example, like you know, as cassettes yeah, like, get larger, they're going to continually drop the hanger further down, which, like tiny little things like that. But you can solve like, some I'm, of that. I'm fully, fully supportive of buying a custom bike and riding it because, like, it is hands down so much better of an experience than an off the shelf bike if you're not concerned about aero watts and all of that. Like, it's just hands down, they ride better, they fit better. You hop on it, and it's the geometry perfect for you. Like fully, fully supportive of that. I'm not, not trying to be negative towards that. I'm just don't call it forever bike. Like it's just not a thing anymore. I, I clearly, <laughs> I clearly hit a nerve because did anyone else notice that Zach's voice volume went up and like, <laughs> like three, three thirty decibels or whatever? It's just silly though. Like <laughs> the bike industry is always trying to do better and improve marginal gains on everything. So like not just frames, but group sets and like Dave said, chain line and derailleur hangers and stuff like that. It's just constantly. Like everyone's trying to one up each other 
and make the old that, products not that is, work anymore. That is definitely true. And okay, fine. Like I, I will, I will not use the forever bike term because that clearly is a sore subject for Zach. Let's, let's, let's call fine, it a but... custom carbon superbike. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> superbike. Um, How about the for a while bike? For a while? <laughs> yeah, for a while. For a while. For, for, for longer than most bikes. Yeah. How, how about that? Would that work better? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So why, why couldn't a for longer than most bike be carbon fiber? <laughs> it can. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it totally can. And, and I would like to make this, this important point. The, like the repairability thing, this actually, mm-hmm. this really kind of annoys me because every experience. myth. Yeah. Every experience I've ever had is that carbon is infinitely more repairable than, for example, my titanium mosaic or a steel bike or like where you have to like pull an entire tube out weld mm-hmm. a new tube in got to pay a frame builder to do that as opposed to a carbon bike where the proliferation of carbon repair in the last what, what half decade or so has been pretty massive like i've got a buddy who lives here in durango who has a mechanical engineering degree and he just like wrap like rewraps carbon top tubes on a regular basis particularly for the college kids in town Hasn't lost one yet. Like it's, it's not. It's not. It's not. That's not that I think, difficult. I think the argument against that though is like the difference is that carbon bike when it inevitably reaches its lifespan, or someone doesn't want to pay to get it re- fixed, it just ends up in the landfill. Where a oh, titanium that's, that, that's bike true, or an though. aluminum bike. It's coming up in a future podcast episode. Don't worry, Zach. <laughs> yeah, it might end up in your in your Silka tire. Signal. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. It, instead of in, but for the most part, carbon bikes and carbon wheels and everything end up in the landfill or if you have a titanium frame that's damaged beyond repair like and it can be repaired but if this one is beyond repair or reach just lifespan because it's not a forever bike like that material is raw metal that can just be recycled like it doesn't just continue to make the landfills larger and larger right like, into the, the, hundreds of camping sporks exactly <laughs> yes there there is definitely much much greater like the metal bike is much more environmentally friendly but not as always as easy to repair as carbon. Sure. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I think James's point is like there is kind of a stigma around that when people think custom bike, they think steel and titanium. And for the most part, and I think there are quite a number of new options in the space with carbon that uh deserve attention. Especially when we're look especially when we're looking at especially if for for customers who are looking at traits that are not necessarily solely directed at being something er than the previous generation, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So I, this is a topic that we've obviously talked about before, and, and maybe I'm beating a dead horse here, but um, th- this idea that we shouldn't necessarily just be constantly fixated on bikes that are some sort of marginal improvement over the previous one, I mean, is that something like, like how, do you, how, do you, how do you deal with that when ultimately what a lot of people want is just something that works really, really well and will stay like that for a long time? Because I mean, you're 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 chasing a an impossible goal, right? If the if the goal is always to be better, more aero, lighter, whatever, like there's there's no end point there, right? I mean, that's I mean that's why specialized like we've talked about the Athos a million times, but like that's why they came out with that because not they've realized not everybody wants and needs a race bike, and I see so many Athoses riding around town, like not because people are like, oh, I want to have a 14 pound disc bike, because great. it just like rides really well. And that's, I think that that riding really well quality needs to be a little more at the forefront of bike marketing rather than just like, you're going to save half a watt. I mean, this, this is why you have your custom mosaic, right? Yeah, totally. Like what's it weigh? Do you even know? Mm, Maybe 17, something like that. I don't know. 
Oh, is that, yeah, that's it hanging up there, right there, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's hanging oh. up on the ceiling. How about that? Yeah. Well, anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there, that we shouldn't necessarily just think of carbon bikes always as just being fragile and disposable, because it doesn't, doesn't always have to be that way. And it'd be nice to just kind of remind people. I mean, like anytime, whether I see one or you see like someone rolling the coffee shop on a custom carbon bike, everyone just looks at it in the news and ahs and is like, oh man, that thing's sweet. Whether it's like a Parley or a Crumpton or a Argonaut or whatever, like everyone sees that and is like, that's really cool. So I think why is this bike, yeah, should also go in that category. Yeah, I think, and and there is now a trend of more and more of these these makers joining the space. Um, you know, the custom market is kind of getting a bit saturated and pretty busy, but carbon is definitely a, a material that's growing in popularity amongst the carbon makers. Um, you know, there's Sugarloaf out of Australia and and Bridge Bike Works have just launched out of, uh, I think they're Toronto-based, James. Um, mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there are a lot of new options in this space. and uh, Right. And yeah. they're not necessarily all tube to tube like they used to be. Correct. Yeah. And I think, although Sugarloaf is, but um, I do think, yeah, we're, we're at a point where it'll be up to these brands to to get their word out and to to have, a, I guess, a united front and explaining to customers why custom carbon makes sense and why, you know, having that extra two, 300 grams on a frame versus something like an Athos is, isn't a bad thing. Hmm. Well, on the flip side of the, bike that should last a little bit longer than a while thing. Uh, Ronan recently wrote an article about a bike that he found online, uh, or I guess a, a video that he found online about a particular bike. Um, it's, it's, it's insanely light, absolutely completely insane. It's 3.3 kilos. So what is that, like seven pounds or something like that? Um, granted, that's without pedal or bar tape, but still, like, oh, holy crap, that's not heavy. So this thing... Clearly not really necessarily meant to be super durable. It's it's based on a 2016 Cannondale Super 6 Evo High Mod with all the paint stripped off. Uh, actual weight on that thing was 619 grams. I'm not sure what size it was. It was running an aftermarket fork that's 229 grams. Crazy, crazy light uh, carbon cockpit components from Darimo, uh, including a seat post that uses a section of flexible composite string. Like, really? Like, that's part of the head design. Um, SRAM Red 22 group set that basically has been filed and drilled and whatever to within an inch of its life. Um, 101 gram per set AX lightness, carbon brake calipers, THM carbon cranks, carbon fiber chain rings, 620 gram carbon tubular wheel set, 620 grams for the whole set. 15 gram skewers, 15 grams for the pair. And a five gram carbon fiber seat post clamp, which I should maybe specify is actually two seat post clamps because it was two little pieces that were one top and one bottom sounds like a death trap and let's let's not forget <laughs> the uh the power cords inner cables the discontinued yes. power cords yes. inner cables which um were discontinued for a reason uh, <laughs> tie them in a knot. yes you have to tie them in a knot correct so in this article which is very much worth reading on cycling tips you, you should go check that out and watch the video pretty pretty remarkable uh ronan described a couple, a couple of notable quotes in here he said quote shifting that sounds about as precise as a drunken cat playing darts in the dark Unquote. And then another one, quote, uh, the result seems about as functional as a chocolate teapot, unquote. So my question here, this bike was obviously built to a purpose and that being to be just stupidly light. Uh, I mean, it does seem rideable. Like I'm, I'm sure you could get on it and ride it away somewhere. But where do you draw the line between lightweight and barely functional? A fair ways north of this bike. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, Ronan was even saying that he he would question even riding it uphill in a, in a hill climb event. Like it's that questionable. It'll I mean, be flexy. I've, I've built and worked on a number of weight weenie bikes, not quite this extreme, but like still really light with all the crazy, all the things, all the things, and even just spinning around in a parking lot is kind of terrifying on them. Like the brakes don't do anything. The whole like handlebars just feel like they're gonna just snap and you're gonna go over the eat the ground and like the saddle you can't actually sit on it and it doesn't shift the chain rings it's just all terrible like it's cool to look at but and these parts don't have a lot of uh, uh like either a high safety factor or a there's there's not really a lot of room to move when it comes to like finding the right torque on these things, right? Like some of these yeah. some of these parts, like the difference between not having it slip and then just having it crack is minute. It's very small. Um. So yeah, I mean these some of these parts are really just made for show bikes or people that really just want to have the lightest thing in their bunch and are quite willing to accept that it might only last a few months. I mean the thing to me, like nowadays, you can buy road bike with all stock parts from any number of companies and have it be really really light and also break and shift and be arrow and do all of the things a fast bicycle should do so like to me it doesn't make sense to why you'd want this over like something with mostly stock parts and i as as like a grow up on weight weenie forums person like i appreciate it but it's also terrible yeah i i I think it's just a bit of fun, honestly. Yeah. Like, yeah, no. I, am I gonna am I gonna descend f- anything on it? No, <laughs> I'm not gonna send no. my driveway on it. But <laughs> but but is it cool as like a a technological exhibition? Yeah, that's kind of oh, yeah. It's super rad, cool. super yeah. rad to look at and touch and feel and yeah. Have your friends pick it up. But, but like, uh, so, but, so so so, what do we think? I mean, I have been outside the weight weenie world for a little while. Uh, but based off of this bike and sort of based off what we know of weights of like bone stock, really light bikes, which is sort of like low, what low six kilos, right? Um, like what is the, what, what do we think is like a reasonable limit for like, what would you have to do to this bike to make it pretty rideable? Is it like a four and a half kilo bike or a five kilo bike? Like what, what is the limit these days? Some bar tape and pedals would be helpful. First of mm-hmm. all, that would be and good. Also, like, Every one of these bikes, they always put track tires on it. And it's like your track tires are 19, 21 mil. And like you're not going to make it down your driveway in those things without getting a flat. Like at least it needs to at least be somewhat functional for me to be a real bicycle. It's like what's the number that we think it would hit? If if you if you change things up and wanted to ride this thing, like what's the lightest rideable, fully rideable that I would I feel think confident it'd be over five bombing kilos. down bombing down yeah. descent without fearing for my life? Yeah. yeah. Five, that, five and a half. That's about the number that I was thinking of in my head too. About five, five-ish. Yeah. And even then, even to hit five, you still have to make some significant compromises. You're still having to run like a full carbon saddle. Uh, you're probably still running a, a seat post with some real sketchy uh, retention system. Uh, you're likely running a, a very flexible handlebar uh, and you are drilling mechanical derailers. Um, and... At that point, you're also probably running like a an aluminium cassette, which, speaking from experience, it's not going to last very long. Do break uh, teeth off, so if you shift too hard. So, um, yeah, I mean, there there are going to be compromises even when you add one and a half kilos to this bike. It's um, 
yeah, the re- the way weenie world, there's there's just no other way around it. You yeah, compromise is the is the name of the game. So is it safe to say? I think I've asked this question before on previous episodes, but is it safe to say that all four four of us have made decisions to save weight that were uh, ill advised mm-hmm. that we learned from? Oh yeah, I had a CAD nine down to six and a half kilos. CAD nine. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. With pedals. I mean, whoa. Um, that was the bike. That was the bike where I found out that aluminium cassettes um, don't last. Yeah, I mean, I had a mountain bike with aluminum cassette and road front derailleur and oh, yeah. all kinds of dumb things. Yeah, my brother raced on aluminum rotors one time. Oh yeah, the stands ones. Yeah, I still have a set of those. Yeah, terrible. I have I have a set of carbon fiber rotors actually. Ooh, bad idea. Yeah, no, it, I did some real dumb things to mountain bikes around two thousand three. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have left those days behind me. And thank mm. goodness. Although the tendencies, they still come out, right? Like, like if I'm gonna if I go do a race somewhere, I still look at the bike and I'm like, what could I do to you? Yeah, I, I still have a drawer. <laughs> I still have several drawers full of titanium hardware. I yeah. yeah, like I was recently building myself a new XC bike and it's like, ooh, I could replace the steel bolt with the titanium. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those habits that those habits don't die so easily. But uh, what's what's the dumbest what's the dumbest reason you've had to DNF from a race? Oh, I, I think I, I, I'm sure I've mentioned this on a previous podcast before. But in my in my college mountain bike racing days, like back before I had any any concept of nutrition, like absolutely none, I bonked so hard that I passed out. Whoa, okay, that's not great. Yeah. Yeah, I, I woke up to one of my teammates looking down at me as I was laying on the ground. Oh, I was hoping you'd Oof. mention a product failure, but that still dug, works. Dug deep on that yeah. one. <laughs> Didn't uh, win. <laughs> I, I I shaved my seat post clamp down so much that it <laughs> yes. lasted that it just snapped like a half hour into a, a cross country race. Brilliant. And my and my saddle just went bloop straight down yeah. to the bottom. Yeah. So mm. mine mine I had, is uh I I removed half my rotor bolts and didn't lock tight in the others and just had my rear rotor fall off <laughs> mid-race. <laughs> uh, I mean I used to run I used to run three roller bolts all the time. Like yeah. that was a yeah. Why you don't you only, <laughs> why do you need six? Six is tw- way too many. Yep. Well, and certainly you can't have you you can't have you know five or four because that's that's not totally radially symmetrical. So right. it's gotta be three, obviously. Yep. Exactly. I guess I guess you could have two, but that might be pushing things too much. Mm. Mm. Yeah. All right. Mm. Anyway, moving on. That's enough talk about this sort of stuff. Let's move on to Ask a Mechanic. Derailers, bearings, disc brakes, and rim brakes, sealants and chain loops. Ask a Mechanic. All right. Our first question comes from Eric Geyer. Eric has a set of Industry 9 AR25 uh, all-road wheels that he has mounted 28-millimeter Kadex Classics tubeless tires on, and he cannot get the bead to unseat when unmounting. He said they were super, he said they were tight but not super hard to mount. And he said now that they are on, uh, now that they are on, his thumbs are not strong enough to push them off, and he can't get a tool in to push them off either. Do we have any advice on unmounting them? He said he's a little uncon- well, he's a little concerned about unmounting them on the road. Obviously, if he needs to get a tube inside, so he would like some roadside compatible unmounting tips. Uh, he has yet to try the quote stand on the tire and pull up on the rim method. Looks easier for for mountain bike tires that have a bigger casing. Hmm, Dave, I know you have some tips for this one. I actually, it's it sucks. 
It just, <laughs> uh, uh, there's there's a number of combinations now on the market and they don't even have to be tubeless. It's just um, generally caused by tubeless rims. But yeah, there's just not a great way around this other than just trying to force it. I don't know, maybe do more thumb wars and start going to the gym and just, you know, doing thumb things. Um, yeah, I mean, there's... Realistically, some of these some of these tires fit on so tightly that you almost need a bench vice to get them unstuck. Uh, and there's there's not a lot that roadside repairs can offer. Um, maybe carry like a Kinipex pliers wrench with you in a back pocket. Uh, but yeah, really, it's it's a matter of one not letting it seat for too long term that it actually that the sealant might get glue the tire on in place, and the other is just really having a, a strong grip. Zach, do you have any tips for getting off a, particularly roadside tips for getting off a really, really tight road tire? Uh, I mean, I didn't hear what your guys' tips were because I was on the phone with someone. But Dave didn't have any. I like, I've had a, this situation happen before, and I've literally put the tire in a vice, yep. and ripped it off the rim, which is something that you're not going to have in your jersey pocket. No. My um, my suggestion is to carry plugs. Nope. So you don't have to take the tire off. Demand a refund. Get some different wheels. Because this should never happen, and it's or, awful. Well, it, the, but the, here's the problem, though: we don't know if it's the wheels' fault or the tires' fault, right? And it both. may not be either fault. Send them both back. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is the problem with tubeless. Like we've talked about this for ages, but there's like not there are standards, but the wheel companies look at the tire companies, and the tire companies look at the wheel companies, and no one wants to be responsible and just all get on the same page for dimensions. Which is particularly disappointing in this case because I've ridden both of these things that Eric is running. Those wheels are really, really nice, and those tires are actually quite nice. It just may be that that particular wheel and tire combination is not very good. Mm-hmm. I hate this so much. Yeah, it's it's, it's so really a, a terrible situation that is far too common. Um, the one thing I would say is that um, gloves can actually make a big difference. So uh, maybe packing some really lightweight like mechanics gloves with like a, a rubber grip on them, that might actually make all the difference for you being able to squeeze that tire hard enough and... I mean, it's just it. like, this is something that should never happen. That like It isn't. The no. bike industry should not want this to be an end consumer experience. Like, at all costs, this should not be a real world thing. And it is, sadly. Yeah. Although a few years ago, we were talking about, you know, what happens if you have a, a flat and your tire just rips off the wheel and gets caught in the frame and sends you over the handlebars. So that's not going to happen. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> you know, small wins. Yeah, maybe the solution yeah. is just ride at home. Because it ain't coming off anyway. <laughs> just right at home. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this comes back to the conversation we had with Josh Portner last week where he said once they put the tire insert into the tire, they cut it off. If they have a flat yeah. I mean, and they the need to replace the tire, the bead, they cut it. The bead is still in there, so then you still have to pry the bead off the shelf, mm-hmm. which is not... Like, I've tried this technique and it's... Right, you, you still can't get in there to cut the bead. Itself. Yeah. Like, you can cut the casing off easily. Yeah, the casing's easy. It's not yeah. like a tubular where you just, like, cut it and then you stick something in and peel the whole thing off. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, if he, if he had hookless, he could just air them up past 80 and then they would blow off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. <laughs> can we just Real? fire everybody involved in, <laughs> in rim and tire design for the last 20 years? Any Anybody oh in the bike God. industry who's been involved in this for the last 20 years, <laughs> you're fired. You have to go find a new job. Sorry. Oh, my. Is, it's just my. An, it's an embarrassment. And it's and it's frankly, it's it's dangerous. It's it, it annoying. 
and they need to fix it. And well, I guess we've talked we've talked about this before. In theory, they have sort of fixed it, and we are unfortunately just in this really really ugly period of limbo where we have this mix of products that are compliant and not compliant. So which is which? It's no one knows. No one, and no one knows. labels so, things. So. Eric, anyway, unfortunately, we do not have any wonderfully useful solutions for you in this case. Um, so uh, given that the tires are much cheaper than the wheels you have, unfortunately, I would maybe look into running some different tires. And, and unfortunately, still, as far as finding different tires that you know will fit differently, that is something that, unfortunately, you're going to have to kind of just scour around for people's experiences to see what might fit differently. Because as Zach mentioned, there is... There is no universal database for for a tire bead diameter or like a tire bead stretchiness or that sort of thing. It's just it just doesn't exist. I mean, I would they said they're i nine wheels. I would just call i nine and be like, "What tires have you guys used on these without issue?" and go that route. But it's not it's not exclusive. I said this before. It's not exclusive to tubeless tires. I've got a set of wheels here which are tubeless rims, but just running Conti GP five thousand clinches on it, and the same thing oh, yeah. happens. Um, yeah, so it's, awful. it's, it's just, I, I think, yeah, there, there can be combinations of tire that, that are to blame, but really it's, it's modern tubeless rim design. That's really designed to retain a tire that's, right. that's causing this, um, right. Team tube inside. Yeah. So anyway, it's, it's not an issue that's going away anytime soon. That's certainly, that's certainly true. So yeah, it's, uh, if anyone's listening, it's, it's probably, you know, make a tool for this. Um, someone like a little roadside tie lever that works like a bench vice. All right, our next question, Daniel, I have to apologize because you have told me your uh, proper way to pronounce your name, and unfortunately, I forgot to play that audio clip again. Daniel Rosbach, uh, he says he's getting back to joining, or getting, he's getting closer to joining Team Wax Inside, as far as his chain goes. He's very specific about that. Um, he's a little bit confused by the whole crockpot discourse, though, however. He's asking, why can't I just put in... Why can't I just put the wax in a normal pot on my electric stove and heat it on a low setting and then check the temperature? Dave? Uh, firstly, um, you can also do chain waxing outside. It doesn't have to be wax inside. Um, do it wherever you, wherever you choose. Um, <laughs> but, uh, sorry. Terrible uh, pun. Terrible. All right, maybe, maybe take that out. Um, <laughs> leave it in, leave it in. <laughs> Uh, that, was wor- that was worse than worse than Kaylee's Depana flat comment the other day on the weekly pod. Anyway, Dave, answer um, the question. So the idea with the slow cooker is that it uh, you can buy a slow cooker or a, a crock pot relatively cheaply uh, in Australia. I can get one for fifteen dollars from the local supermarket, and it's small. And then that just becomes your dedicated device that you just leave the wax in. And the i the benefit of that is that it's very hard to overheat the wax with. So you can kind of just set the chain on top of the solidified wax, turn it on and walk away and effectively just forget about it. Whereas with any other method that uh, involves more heat, you, you basically have to stand there and monitor it as if you're, as if you're cooking something delicate. Um, so that's, that's really the only reason why you couldn't do it. Um, you can absolutely do it in like sous vide style within a, within a hot water bath. Uh, but it's just you're, you're starting to lose some of the benefits of of waxing because you're now spending a huge amount of time um, cooking your chain. Uh, so uh, for me, at that point, I would I would be walking away from chain wax and moving to a a very good drip lube because um, yeah, I just they're really good. I'd, yeah, I just I couldn't be bothered to stand there for twenty minutes to half an hour to 
monitor my chain that closely. Right. And I'd imagine this is the case in Australia as well, but I got, I bought my slow cooker just used at a thrift shop. I think I paid $4 and 50 cents us. Oh, that's cheaper than mine. Um, quite a bit cheaper. Yeah. And it works fine. My house hasn't burned down yet. So I think, uh, Daniel, unless you're really, to go really, by with all electronics. Yeah, yes. Unless you are really, really averse to just adding anything to your home. Uh, I would recommend just buying a crock pot. It's just the easier way to go. Uh, next question from Alex Reimers. Alex wants to know if he's going to die uh, because he saw these little indents. So he found these little indentations on his fork when replacing his old beaten up headset that he noticed had some play. He said this kind of ring indentation thing only goes around halfway around the steer and not the full steer. So it sounds to me like, and based on the picture that he provided, which unfortunately I cannot show because this is a podcast, uh, he was riding for some unspecified period of time with the headset a little bit loose. And it didn't appear to wear any material away from the steerer, but he definitely has a little like half, like like hemicircular indentation slightly in the fork. I mean, officially, I guess we have to say that you need to replace your steerer tube or you have to replace your fork. I mean, it's hard to say without seeing it, but I would say if you have to ask the question, is this sketchy enough that I might die? Then you probably already know the answer. <laughs> It's not something that, even if it's perfectly safe, it's not something that I would always want to have in the back of my head when riding a bike. No. Like, if it's if it's actually worn material away, then obviously, yeah, replace the fork. If it looks like the aluminum kind of left some coloring away on the carbon steer, then that's probably fine. But if it's, like, at all, like, crushed or indented or wore away carbon, then it's that's... Grooved. Yeah. Yeah. Because not. I guess, really, the issue is that even... Even with a perfect steer tube, you already have a stress riser just by virtue of have, having that hard edge up against the carbon steer tube. So now if you have that inherent stress riser combined with a little groove that has been worn by some way into that steer tube at that exact spot, I mean, would it be okay to ride in most situations? Like it's, I don't know, it, it, it's probably not going to just break off on your next casual ride. But the issue is that it's a hidden part that you cannot see. And since you're unlikely to be taking that thing apart every time you ride it to inspect to see if there's a crack starting or growing or anything like that, a broken steer tube is not, I, that, that is probably the number one thing on my list as far as my most feared mechanical failures on a bike. Yeah. Of all the things to take a risk on, just yeah. buy a new Ford. Um, I'd say this is just a really healthy reminder to not run a bike with a loose headset. This is actually quite a common issue. Uh, basically, anyone that's ridden a bike with a with a loose headset for any length of time will, will generally cause this to their fork. And then most of the time, you won't know this, that your fork actually has that issue. You'll tighten up the headset and you'll keep riding unknowingly. And what you'll probably find is that where that split ring for the top headset bearing sits is always going to be directly in line with this indentation. And that split ring is never going to quite cause the same compression on the headset bearing again. So you're going to consistently have the headset loosening uh, more frequently than before. So basically the problem just uh, exacerbates itself and can continues to get worse and worse because your headset will just keep coming loose. Uh, and the only real great fix is to replace that fork steerer. Um, so yeah, it is it is actually a common issue. I've, I've seen it quite a bit on, on quite a lot of different bikes. So it's... Um, yeah, don't run a loose headset. Mm, Alex, wish we had better news for you, but that is our official recommendation. Not even even our unofficial recommendation, I'd say. Um, next question from Andrew Weaver. He's got a question about greasing, uh, re-greasing versus replacing cartridge bearings, especially on mountain or gravel bikes that see a lot of dirt. 
wants to know what is the advantage of regreasing a bearing versus replacing it, and when can a bearing be regreased rather than replaced? Uh, he says most bearings for wheels and suspension, especially on a mountain bike, are fairly inexpensive. He already has the tools for replacing them, but he's he worried that uh, and he worries that if he opens up a bearing to clean and regrease it, that it'll damage a seal and then you know dirt will get in easier and it'll need to be replaced anyway. So what are what are our feelings on this? I mean, I would say like if it's just kind of dry, then no problem. Just pop the seal off, obviously carefully so that you don't damage it and then regrease it. But if it's at all gritty or indexed or anything like that, I would just replace it. The bearings aren't that expensive. Yeah, I think uh, preventative maintenance is a big thing. Uh, we're seeing brands like Enduro and Chris King and Ceramic Speed are all pretty strong proponents of opening up the seals on their on their bearings and refreshing the grease uh, just to ensure a long lifetime. So if you're willing to do that, then you'll, your bearings will go a lot further. Um, and that especially applies to something like your suspension frame pivots where they can be kind of annoying to remove and perhaps not the best thing for the frame to take in and out of the frame or, or replace as, as frequently. So if you can just pop the seals off and keep those bearings running for longer, then that's that's probably going to be a good thing long-term. And this is where I get on my soapbox once again about why why can't Grease Guard come back? It's so good. <laughs> pop it full of grease, um, a couple, Zach, couple, couple squirts full of grease, you're done. Zach, do you have a preferred method for getting those seals off? Uh, I usually just use a fresh like razor blade and just kind of very carefully pick it up. Yeah, because they are pretty easily damaged. Yeah. Yeah, because if you just don't want to damage, like you can bend them if you're aggressive and then it's not ever going to sit in there straight again. And you can also damage the little dust seal that runs against the bearing. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm the same. I use an X-Acto blade. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, so basically it is possible. Go ahead and have a shot at it if, you're, if you'd like, but ultimately it's probably just easier to replace the bearing. Um, next question. This is back to chain waxing again. Uh, this one comes from Ang Ha. Uh, he has asked us questions before. Listening to the Chain Lube podcast, how many times can I pop a master link on and off for both road and mountain chains? He said he's been burned twice on his mountain bike reusing an Eagle 12-speed master link. Technically speaking, for almost all of them, you're only supposed to use them once. Yeah. I mean, I think you guys just talk about this on the chain waxing podcast, I thought, thought maybe. Like if it's still if it still clicks... Like if it still clicks, then you're probably okay, which is usually like a couple times. Yeah, like every manufacturer is going to say one time only. Yeah, uh, there are some exceptions. Uh, YBN do one, which uh, there's a they say is good for up to five uses, and uh, Whipperman Connects can be infinitely done up and undone. Um, the the big issue I'd say with waxing is um, this is something I answered in that in that mailbag column from last week is um, waxing because it kind of is a solid uh, a solid lubricant. It can kind of add a bit of width or thickness to the chain. And you just need to be really careful with those master links because the tolerances are really tight. So you can often wax the chain and then go to put the master link back on and not realize that the master link hasn't slotted into its respective um, pins or guides and that you've actually kind of bent the link outward on one side. Uh, so I, I'm speculating that that might've happened with that Eagle link at some point. Um, that yeah, it's just missing. Uh, yeah, installed incorrectly and was just slightly damaged in the process. Um, so yeah, it really have, pays to pay attention. I have seen too, not on the nicer Eagle chains, but on some of the cheaper ones, I have been on multiple rides with people with chains that they haven't taken the master link on and off, and the cheaper Eagle master links have given way. Interesting. But that was like I would say that's a couple of years ago, like when Eagle started to come out. 
So I'd like to think that that issue is yeah. remedied. And there was some pretty high profile events like of say Nino Shirta breaking chain, breaking mass links as well. Um, I think Aaron Gwynn as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, I haven't seen those issues lately though. Yeah, but Aaron won that race, so that's that's not a negative thing. It's fine. <laughs> uh, moving on, moving on to another chain question. This one comes from Ben Guernsey. Um, ben would like to know if there's any reason to be wary of buying chains online versus a kind of a more official retailer. Uh, like, have there been cases of fakes? He said he's looking at Dura Ace and XTR chains specifically. He said they're fifty three dollars at his local bike shop that 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 does sell online, but. You can also find them for like 25 or 30 bucks on eBay. He said it seems too good to be true. It also seems like a lot of trouble to fake a chain to then sell it for 25 bucks. I saw my first fake Shimano chain the other day. Yeah, basically, Ben, there are fakes out there. And while it may seem like it is too much trouble to sell a chain, and they go through all the trouble and then sell it for 25 bucks. Believe me, it is happening. And apparently- People are making lots of money on it. Yeah, because- Chains have been hard to come by. They're really hard to come by, especially (laughs) right now. And everyone is desperate to find a chain to fit their bike. And Shimano has- sent out press releases and stuff about about fakes, uh, fake online stores, every, and some of the fakes have been quite elaborate. Um, so I guess I would say if it seems too good to be true, then usually follow yep. your gut. It probably yeah. is. Um, counterfeit Shimano parts is increasingly an issue and so much so that I believe in Asia, Shimano is starting to implement like a QR code system that that sort of resets Correct. itself that you can do a validation of your component. So it's, it's that much of an issue that Shimano is actually coming up with uh, solutions for people to confirm that they have authentic product. Um, there's fake brake pads out there, chains, uh, I think cassettes as well. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's counterfeit. So it's designed to fool. All right, let's have just one more question here and then we will wrap up for the week. This one comes from Tom Javorowski. Should the compression plug in a carbon steerer tube when tightened to spec, should that plug be changing the external diameter of the tube to the point where, where to the point where headset spacers won't come off without loosening the plug? That he has not experienced this before. Uh, and he said, to be clear, he knows that compression has to go somewhere, but this is a very noticeable difference and clearly it's alarming. Theoretically, it should not happen, but I've seen it happen. For sure. I think we've all seen it happen. Dave? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Lucia, Raul Lucia answered this one where it basically shows that the compression plug is a needed part of the assembly. Um, and that, yeah, certainly on lighter weight steerer tubes, it it definitely does happen. So, Right, because uh, certainly on those lighter weight steerer tubes, if you are tightening that compression plug to spec and it, you're noticing that the diameter is increasing on the outside... That also means that if you do not have a compression plug or especially a good compression plug in there, then when you're tightening up your stem bolts, that steer tube is also compressing and squishing as you tighten those bolts. So uh, one thing I might recommend is if you are installing that compression plug in a carbon steer tube, if you have the option, if it's a round steer tube, um, you might want to look into a different compression plug. I don't know what comp- uh, what type of compression plug you're using, Tom. My guess is it's probably one of the ones that doesn't actually have a ton of surface contact with the inside of the steer tube. So I would maybe consider switching to one uh, that's a lot taller, that has uh, that engages with a lot more of the steer tube, because my guess is that uh, when you tighten those to spec, that you will not see that sort of uh, external diameter com- uh, expansion. Yeah. So, Spread the load out a bit. Yeah. So yeah, a lot exactly. of those compression plugs are around 30 millimeters, the problematic ones. Um, look for one with at least 50 millimeters. Um, 70 millimeters is sort of the considered a long compression plug. So um, as far as things to Google. All right. Well, that will wrap up our Ask a Mechanic segment, but we are not done, mainly because we promised a couple episodes ago. Well, actually, we first first we asked 
Actually, I can't remember what the actual order of this was. Well, first we did ask people to leave, leave us some more ratings and reviews, which people have most definitely responded in kind. Um, but we also promised quite a long time ago, I believe, to read and potentially rebut some very negative the reviews that we've gotten from people. So I think, I think we should take this moment Uh-oh. to go through a couple of those. Kay- Kaylee, would you like to do the honors? Which ones do you want me to read? I oh, whichever ones you'd like to read. All right. You can take your pick, Kaylee. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with some good ones. All right, Kaylee, go ahead and start with some gonna good ones. I'm going to start with some good ones. Uh, we appreciate you, Kevin Smith, mean spewings of the cycling nerd. <laughs> uh, he says James is an old grumpy hater, which I think is accurate. Uh, he says I couldn't. Well, actually, this isn't nice. But it's five stars, but it's not nice. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what we asked for. <laughs> James is an old grumpy hater. Haley couldn't fix a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, let alone a bicycle. <laughs> Dave is cool, and the only reason he is on the show is because he likes to be surrounded by tools, and Zach just doesn't even get a mention. So, <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Excellent. I'll take Excellent. it. Uh, we've got five stars from Simon Never. I agree with everything James Wong says. I disagree with everything Kaylee says. Uh, <laughs> JK, I still read his VN article on the Ronda every spring. I appreciate that. Don't know which one you're talking about, but I appreciate that. Uh, and I want to be Dave R when I grow up. By the way, the link to Sterling Bike Works was life-changing. Mm. And I don't know where we got See post-extraction. We've got fair mm. enough. <laughs> from lucas which is, which is got, what we also asked for <laughs> we've got fair enough from juki smoot three grumpy old men and a sweet innocent El- australian albino skin child <laughs> deliver the best unbiased takes on current bike tech and news and trends ask a mechanic segment is a wealth of info like that uh we got five stars and somebody telling me that i live in the worst city in america in the worst state in america which is just objectively not true <laughs> uh, so that's that's fine this is actually my favorite one as a as a lifelong npr devotee uh the closest thing to car talk for bikes and five stars thank you i will take that one hissed mark uh now what actually to go ones? so the bad ones are all old there's no new bad ones it, the most really recent, come on no at least none that have none that are in this list here well, we haven't brought up anything. Uh, we haven't brought up anything political in quite a while, so that might be why. Yeah, that's probably. Wasn't why. there one that gave us like a terrible score and said we're completely irrelevant? Oh, I mean, there's yeah, there's some of those. Um, oh, let's let's read. There's some that call us elitist. Fat Panda twenty three thinks that we're elitist. This one says we're addicting. There we go. Four stars, and I assume that the loss of a star is entirely my fault. Uh, James, <laughs> the, the, the title of this review is Fantastic Pod. Kaylee, please step aside. <laughs> <laughs> this, 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 one, this one hurts. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it doesn't really. Uh, James, Dave, and Zach are really awesome on this podcast. Inform opinions and fair observations of the bike industry. I realize he's the EIC of Cycling Tips and Zach's buddy, but Kaylee is a net negative on this pod. <laughs> <laughs> Which, frankly, is true. Uh, so I'm not really gonna. I'm not really gonna <laughs> argue that one. Uh, where are we here? These, right, see, well, these are all let, old. There, there's let's no, call, there's let's no call it ones. there. That's, 
that that's enough there. Well, thank thank you everyone for leaving comments and ratings and reviews and that sort of thing. Uh, we are going to ask you again if you have not left us a rating or review on your on, on iTunes specifically, please do so. Five stars only, please. And then you can write whatever you want. Be as mean you be as mean as uh, be as mean as you want in the comments, but please give us five stars. Yep. Just not to Dave because he's a sweet Australian David, albino. Skin. Dave is sensitive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, don't yeah, don't be mean to me because then what happens is I I drown my sorrows and then while doing that I lose control of my credit card and then I buy really expensive tools <laughs> and it's just and then I have to drown my sorrows because I can't afford to go out and then it's just it's just a real sad state of affairs. So uh, anyway, yeah, just be nice to me, please. Oh hey, we've got a, right. wait, we have Zach Hater here. I found it. Get rid of the mechanic. <laughs> It would be tough to do Ask a Mechanic without him. Uh, Zach apparently killed the vibe. Killed the vibe. You killed the vibe. Mm. But at least, at least you're not as bad as me. So <laughs> I mean, we were talking about this the other day when we were riding. Like we wouldn't be grumpy if the bike industry didn't consistently do really dumb things. Apparently, <laughs> we'd be really happy, and then we wouldn't have anything to talk about. Apparently, you have you have uh, some some grumpy thoughts about a recent podcast episode, though, right? Well, yeah. I, you know, honestly, we're an hour, 20 minutes into this podcast. I was going to say, we got to cut it. All right. We got to cut this off. However, I will request that the next group podcast that Zach and I get a chance to rebut Dave Rome's conversation with Adam Kieran about chain waxing because <laughs> we have rebuts for you. <laughs> All right. Well, don't, don't let me forget. We'll, we'll kick off with that on the next group show. Okay. All yeah. right. As always, thanks so much for listening. Uh, at, if you haven't already subscribed to this Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast, you are missing out. Please go ahead, and hit, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. I also want to make you aware of a new tech mailbag column that we have on cyclingtips.com. So if you want to ask us a question and if you are afraid that it's not going to make it onto the podcast, go ahead and send your tech question to me at tech at cyclingtips.com. And hopefully we'll go ahead and include that in an upcoming mailbag column. So with that, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Except for all the meanies out there.